What's curious is that we're about to consider a film with a main character who is a photographer, someone who, as he convalesces, watches his neighbors from his apartment window. There's clearly something going on here connected with seeing, with viewing. And yet, we're going to talk about the way that director Alfred Hitchcock uses sound, uses music, in his movie, Rear Window. We're told by John Falwell that Hitchcock's films are famed for their unity, particularly Rear Window, with its single set and its highly focused point of view, and that Hitchcock also strengthened the unity of Rear Window through his soundtrack. The soundtrack is made up almost entirely of incidental sounds. The music that we hear in the film issues from the apartment complex in which the hero, L.B. Jeffries, resides. Hitchcock cheats a little in the opening jazz theme, which seems to exist outside the action of the film. But as the action begins, Hitchcock makes the music thinner and tinnier, as though it were issuing from the courtyard itself, and finally reveals its source as a radio within the apartment complex. Hitchcock's soundtrack intensifies the unity of his film in several ways. First, by never allowing sounds to enter into the film from the outside, from outside the world depicted in the film. He maintains his seal over his universe in this way. It is true to itself, self-contained. Second, by only using sounds from the world of the apartment complex, he's able to keep using and reusing his material at hand. Orally, as well as visually, he weaves the apartment dwellers who live across from Jeffries into his life and intensifies the relationships among everyone in the apartment courtyard. We spend a lot of time in Rear Window peeping with Jeff through his window at neighbors in the apartment building across the rear courtyard of his building. We view these neighbors in isolation from one another. They rarely interact or even see one another. When they do acknowledge each other, it's usually with hostility. Visually, Hitchcock presents the neighbors like so many isolated animals pacing relentlessly in their illuminated cages. The film visually emphasizes the loneliness of the modern community, but orally, the neighbors cannot help but be connected. Their music and noises waft into each other's apartments, and into Jeff's apartment also. The effect is that their busy, conscious selves take no note of one another, but on another unconscious level, communicated orally, they are acutely aware of and involved with one another. The soundtrack weaves their lives together. So the song that the composer in the story, who lives across from Jeff, is writing, and also the film's theme song, Lisa's theme, spreads throughout the entire film. And as it does, it weaves together several stories. It seems to express the character Lisa's romantic ideals, but it also adds a sad counterpoint to a couple's marital squabbles and reaches out to the lonely character Miss Lonely Hearts during her contemplation of suicide. 
an anonymous record player from somewhere in the complex, spins out saccharine love songs such as To See You Is To Love You and Waiting For My True Love To Appear that comment touchingly and ironically on Miss Lonelyheart's pathetic pantomimes of romance. Roger Crane relates that Rear Window includes a surprising 39 songs, ballets, and improvisations by a large number of composers, including Jimmy Van Heusen, Richard Rogers, Livingston and Evans, and Leonard Bernstein. Hitchcock has used sound here as a means of giving his film rhythm, but sound has served a second, more emotive purpose also. The sounds Hitchcock chooses and the way he arranges those sounds add to or express the character's loneliness. Rear Window is in many ways a study of urban loneliness, of how people are more isolated and lonely the more densely packed together they are. The film describes effectively that loneliness Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich experienced near death alone on his couch. A loneliness in the midst of a populous town and surrounded by numerous acquaintances and relations, but that yet could not have been more complete anywhere, either at the bottom of the sea or under the earth. All the tragedies of Rear Window play out against a panoply of incidental sounds, children laughing and playing, sirens, cars honking in the street, the sound of rain falling from a gutter, and the vast array of musical sounds, tinkling from the composer's piano, a woman practicing opera scales, neighbors' record players from which issue in the course of the film, snatches of country and classical music and pop standards. The effect of all these incidental sounds is to add a touch of sadness or poignancy to the scenes of loneliness we witness. We see people suffer while we hear the world humming away indifferently. All that from the study, The Sound of Loneliness, Rear Windows Soundtrack by John Falwell of the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. We're about to be loosed from our own pandemic-related isolation, perhaps even loneliness, by an invitation to immerse ourselves in the experience of moviegoing. Movie going with an audience filled with people who love films and the experience of watching them on the big screen. Among the movies, some of America's favorite screen musicals. At the same time, we can see favorite suspense films, a film like Rear Window that integrates its music into the fabric of the narrative itself. David Schroeder tells us in the book Hitchcock's Ear that Rear Window may very well be the most perfectly designed of all Hitchcock's films, and while he normally had everything under control, leaving very little to chance, in this case, Hitchcock took that even further, working on a set designed entirely for the film, constructed in a Paramount Studio storage building with meticulousness that made it the envy of the film world. As it happens, John Hersker worked much of his career at Paramount Pictures, and he found himself on occasion walking through the very soundstage where many great movies were made on the soundstage itself of Rear Window. 
John Hersker is a member of the board of directors of the F.M. Kirby Center for the Performing Arts in downtown Wilkes-Barre. He's also the artistic director and host of the classic film series at the Kirby. John is especially pleased to tell us about what's coming up in the months ahead. The F.M. Kirby Center for the Performing Arts in downtown Wilkes-Barre will be reopening its doors to the public on June 25th as part of a whole welcome back program called Back to the Kirby. We're so excited to be able to announce it. We've all missed, of course, having the Kirby Center as a venue for entertainment over the past year. But all that's coming to an end now. The Kirby's going to be back, and we'll be able to go back to the Kirby. And uh, we're actually kicking off the program with a classic movie series sponsored by Flashback Cinema. But we're also making announcements uh, almost daily about live shows that are coming to the Kirby. So it's very exciting to think about being able to be back in the Kirby Center, which is such a treasure of northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, to be back in the Kirby once again, which we'll all be able to do very soon. Now, movie theaters are very important to you and in your life. And this once was a movie theater, the Kirby once was. Well, that's right. And um, as far as my own experience is concerned, yes, I grew up uh, working in my family's movie theater, which was then called the Hersker Theater in West Hazleton, Pennsylvania, uh, not very far from Wilkesbury, of course, and uh, have spent my whole life in the film industry with Paramount Pictures and operating movie theaters and so forth. And uh, it's my privilege to serve on the board of the FM Kirby Center. And uh, since 2018, uh, a company that I run now called Flashback Cinema, which programs classic movies in theaters all over the country, uh, has been sponsoring a film series every year at the Kirby. Uh, We began it in 2018, which was the uh, 80th anniversary of the opening of of the Comerford Theater. It was opened as the Comerford Theater in 1938 by Emmy Comerford, uh, who was from the area and owned a whole chain of movie theaters. And uh, it eventually changed its name to the Paramount Theater in the 1950s. So most people now who were around in the 60s and 70s remember the Kirby Center as the Paramount Theater. And, of course, it's been the Kirby Center since the 1980s and a live event. But in 2018, we decided to celebrate our theatrical roots by running a monthly movie series. And now, as we're reopening the venue, uh, we thought it would be good to return to our roots again and show a series of classic movies, not monthly but weekly, on the big screen at the Kirby Uh, where movies were shown for most of its history. And so we're very excited to sort of celebrate those theatrical roots. And it's uh, just another reason that people can enjoy, another way that people can enjoy the Kirby Center. And John, when you were looking over the vast array of movies that you could offer, how did you decide on the 25th, the big welcome back event, How did you decide what would go first? Well, we decided we wanted a film, a popular film, which all of these classic movies are that we show, but one that really appeals to the whole family. And so we chose Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which is the first film in the very successful Harry Potter series. And uh, it's, it's sort of that sweet spot for a modern classic movie because... The Harry Potter films are very popular, Um, they're popular with all generations, but there's a whole generation of young people now who've grown up since Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone opened in theaters in 2001. It's amazing to think that the first Harry Potter film is celebrating its 20th anniversary, which uh, is, is, as I say, sort of amazing that so much time has passed, but we wanted to give families particularly the opportunity as well as classic movie lovers in general, to come see a film that's really very meaningful to a lot of people who have grown up with the Harry Potter books and the Harry Potter films, but some of whom may not have seen the Harry Potter films in a theater. 
So that's our kickoff movie on June 25th. And as with all of these movies, it'll show at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and 7.30 in the evening. So there's two opportunities uh, on each Friday to see one of these classic films. It'll kick off with Harry Potter. And people don't know also that you were just very humbly saying that you worked in the movie industry and so forth, but you are a movie lover and aficionado, and you love telling stories about movies, and you are part of the program. Yes, well, part of the Flashback Cinema program is uh, that every film we present, uh, I introduce on screen. And uh, I really enjoy preparing those introductions. And uh, people seem to get a kick out of learning some of the backstories and some of the trivia uh, about the films they're about to see. And so when you come to see a classic movie at the Kirby, you're not just seeing a movie that may be very familiar to you and you've seen before at home. Why come out to a theater to see it? Well, first of all, there's the big screen. There's the experience of seeing it in the dark with an audience, which is always fun. But then you also see the on-screen introduction that I provide, which gives some of the backstory of the particular film you're about to see. And when you were here on at least one earlier occasion, you had some stories that nobody would know about, but you do because you were there in Hollywood for some pretty exciting moments. So you can bring your own personal experience to this, right? Well, it's very personal to me because I've loved movies ever since I worked in, in the theater in West Hazleton. And then working at Paramount Studios was a dream come true for me. And I worked in theatrical distribution, which was the area of the company that licensed the movies to theaters. But it was great fun to walk around the Paramount back lot and to walk around the sound stages where movies like Rear Window were filmed. Rear Window is one of the films in our series that we'll be showing. And that movie was shot entirely on a sound stage, which is kind of amazing because it takes place in the courtyard of an apartment building. But uh, yes, I, I feel a strong connection to these films, and some of them are personal favorites of mine, like Rear Window, which is my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. So yes, it's a lot of fun to be able to provide some, some history to that film. How did you then proceed in terms of movies then? You achieve a balance in this overall. Well, yes, and, and uh, this series is beginning June 25th and will run pretty much weekly uh, all through the summer and into September. And we, we couldn't schedule a summer classic movie series without including something directed by Steven Spielberg. I mean, Steven Spielberg, who uh, the last 30, 40 years has just been a staple of summer blockbuster entertainment. And so we chose Jurassic Park. It's the original Jurassic Park, the one that really launched the franchise and uh, which continues to be a very popular franchise. And, and uh, there was a very popular movie a few years ago, Jurassic World, that played in theaters. But this is the original. This is the first uh, film directed by Steven Spielberg about dinosaurs. And it was, it was a very uh, significant movie to Steven Spielberg because, of course, he had directed Jaws and Indiana, the Indiana Jones films and so on. He had always wanted to direct a dinosaur movie. But he said he had never done it because he couldn't figure out a way to plausibly put dinosaurs and human beings in the same story. Since, as a matter of science, dinosaurs lived a long time before human beings walked the earth. Uh, until he discovered Michael Crichton's novel. Michael Crichton wrote the book Jurassic Park, which came out in the early 1990s. And uh, Steven Spielberg read the book and said that Michael Crichton's idea that, that dinosaur DNA could have been trapped in the bloodstream of a mosquito that was preserved in amber and then used to clone dinosaurs. Steven Spielberg said that was just a genius idea. And so that was his, that was his catalyst for making a film about dinosaurs. But the other obstacle to Steven Spielberg was he wanted to be able to portray them realistically. And CGI, computer-generated imagery, just came into being around that time. 
And so a lot of the special effects in the movie are computer generated. Some are not, some are more traditional special effects. But the fact that the, the novel Jurassic Park gave him the premise for the film and the technology allowed him to depict these dinosaurs realistically was how Jurassic Park came about. And when you see this, the original film holds up beautifully, beautifully. It looks like it could have been made yesterday. Completely realistic presentation of dinosaurs, but it looks awesome on the big screen. And to have that T-Rex, you know, roar on the big screen, there's nothing like it. So we're very excited to have a Steven Spielberg film in our summer classic movie series, and that's Jurassic Park, which will play on Friday, July 2nd. And then what could be nicer than being up in the Alps in those beautiful hills that are alive with music. You want to see Sound of Music on a big screen. You want those mountains. And you'll be able to do it on Friday, July 9th, when we present The Sound of Music, uh, which really is is an extraordinary movie because uh, when it was first released in 1965, it became the biggest movie ever. It surpassed Gone with the Wind in box office sales but it has really lasted as the most watched movie musical ever. And not just the generation that saw it when it was in theaters in 1965, but subsequent generations. This has become a treasured family tradition for families to watch The Sound of Music at home. And so many people have seen it many times, but it's a very watchable movie. You can watch it over and over again, but there's nothing like seeing it on the big screen. And again, you mentioned that that opening shot with Julie Andrews coming out, the Austrian Alps, The Sound of Music, of course, was a Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway play and was very successful in the 1950s with Mary Martin in the lead. And when the decision was made to adapt it as a film in the 60s, the director Robert Wise and and the screenwriter Ernest Lehman decided to open the film up and shoot it on location in Salzburg, Austria. So where the audiences that saw the musical, the Broadway musical Sound of Music had to just imagine what that would look like, filmgoers could see it live on the screen something closely approximating live, obviously film, but it was shot on location in Austria and uh, is just breathtaking to see on the big screen. And of course it has Julie Andrews, who's so wonderful in the part. And we, we, we think now of uh, Julie Andrews and the sound of music interchangeably. When she was cast in that part, she was not a big movie star because her debut film, Mary Poppins, had not yet opened in theaters. And uh, she had made the, the Rodgers and Hammerstein television show Cinderella in 1957 but she had not yet appeared on the big screen when she was cast. And Walt Disney gave Robert Wise, the Robert Wise is the director of Sound of Music, Walt Disney gave Robert Wise a sneak peek at the footage from Mary Poppins, which hadn't opened in theaters, and based on that, Robert Wise decided to cast her as Maria. And of course, it's impossible to imagine anybody else singing in those beautiful Austrian Alps. Now, your favorite, tell us about why it's your favorite Alfred Hitchcock film. Well, Rear Window. Well, Rear Window comes on, uh, on July 16th, And Rear Window stars James Stewart, who was one of Alfred Hitchcock's favorite actors. He cast him in four different films. Rear Window, I believe, was the second after Rope, and after that he did The Man Who Knew Too Much and Vertigo. But Alfred Hitchcock really liked working with James Stewart because he thought James Stewart sort of was the American everyman. He was just the ordinary guy that people found very believable. And in this movie, he plays a magazine photographer who goes all around the world taking pictures of covering news stories all around the world, but he has a broken leg and he's confined to his apartment. And so he really has nothing to do with his days and nights. So he stares out the window onto the courtyard of his apartment building and starts watching what his neighbors are doing. And of course, because this is an Alfred Hitchcock movie, what's going on might be something sinister. And uh, after a while, he decides that there is something going on there. But the whole movie is based on the premise, as one of the characters in the film says, 
people do a lot of things in private they would never once seen in public. Well, that's what James Stewart discovers. And he discovers it with the help of his girlfriend, who's played by Grace Kelly, who was another Alfred Hitchcock favorite. She appeared in three of his films. And she had already appeared in Dial M for Murder when Alfred Hitchcock cast her in this movie. She turned down the part in On the Waterfront that was later played by Eva Marie Saint, which won Eva Marie Saint an Academy Award, so that she could appear in Rear Window because Grace Kelly really liked working with Alfred Hitchcock. And of course, Alfred Hitchcock was very fond of talented female actresses who were blonde. He's famous for casting blondes like Eva Marie Saint and Grace Kelly. So you have this wonderful cast that also includes Thelma Ritter, a marvelous character actress. And if you look closely, you'll see Perry Mason, uh, you'll see Raymond Burr, who played Perry Mason later in the TV show. And Grace Kelly's costumes are designed by Edith Head, who made 11 movies with Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Edith Head, by the way, who is, is a very famous costume designer, holds the distinction of being the woman who's won more Academy Awards than any other woman in history. She won eight. And she was nominated for Rear Window. She didn't win. But she worked with Alfred Hitchcock 11 times. So you have this wonderful premise. The story is a very intriguing one. And you also have this terrific combination of people who worked with Alfred Hitchcock in this movie. And even though the set is, it takes place in the main character's apartment building, it was all shot on a soundstage at Paramount Studios. So there is balance. Rear window, and now more fun. You bring us Hello, Dolly. Dolly. Well, that's right. Hello, Dolly. We've also scheduled it. And you really hit on sort of the common theme of this series is these are all fun, entertaining movies. And uh, whether they're musicals or comedies or adventures movies like Jurassic Park, these are movies that's just fun to go see with your friends, with your family. Maybe if you're a fan of one of these movies and you have a friend who's never seen it, you take them and give them that experience for the first time. And so, yes, Hello, Dolly! is our second musical in the series, along with The Sound of Music. And Hello, Dolly! like The Sound of Music was a very popular Broadway musical. In fact, at the time, it had run longer than any Broadway musical in history. That record has since been eclipsed. But Hello, Dolly! in the mid-60s was enormously popular. And when it came time for the movie version in the late 60s, uh, the filmmakers decided to cast a new young talent, a promising talent, just as Julie Andrews was for The Sound of Music four years before. The filmmakers for Hello, Dolly! cast Barbara Streisand. And Barbara Streisand, at the time, was still quite young. She had uh, really burst on the scene just a few years earlier, a uh, very popular recording artist. Uh, she had already won five Grammys and two Emmys by the time she was cast in Hello, Dolly! And she, had, she was in the process of making Funny Girl, for which she won the Academy Award. But Funny Girl had not been seen when the filmmakers cast her in Hello, Dolly! But they thought it was the perfect combination of the hot new singing sensation, Barbara Streisand, with a, a very popular stage musical. And that's another film in which a lot of talented people work. A lot of people don't realize Gene Kelly directed Hello, Dolly! We all know Gene Kelly singing in the rain on the screen as one of the great musical stars of the MGM golden age of musicals. But uh, later in his career, he switched over to being more of a choreographer and a director. He directed Hello, Dolly! And uh, in the film are Michael Crawford, a young Michael Crawford who went on to appear in Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. Also Tommy Toon, who became a big Broadway star. They're both in Hello, Dolly! And of course you have those wonderful Jerry Herman songs. Those beautiful songs, the title song for which Louis Armstrong shows up. And uh, it's a great moment in the film when Louis Armstrong appears with Barbara Streisand to sing Hello, Dolly! And he found his way into the movie, curiously enough. He was not in the original Broadway show. In fact, the part that he plays in the movie was not even the original show. But Louis Armstrong had a hit with the song Hello, Dolly! 
and was so popular, became a number one record, that uh, the filmmakers for the movie thought, we got to put Louis Armstrong in this movie because he's so associated with the song Hello, Dolly. And it's a great moment in the film when it's just him and Barbara Streisand on the screen, these two great musical talents singing Hello, Dolly together. So it's a feel-good musical. It's a good time at the movies. Bring the family. Same folks who enjoy Sound of Music will enjoy Hello, Dolly. And you bring us to the end of July, not the end of the series, but the end of July with the Maltese Falcon. Well, yes, as I said, we try to have a variety of genres here. And the Maltese Falcon, of course, is one of those great early film noir movies, a a detective movie starring Humphrey Bogart. And the Maltese Falcon is really the movie that established the on-screen persona for what we think of with Humphrey Bogart. You know, Humphrey Bogart had been working in movies for quite a while and had not really achieved stardom. He was generally cast in supporting roles. He usually played gangsters. Uh, He was under contract to Warner Brothers where the big stars were Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, and George Raft was a bigger star than uh, Humphrey Bogart. But Humphrey Bogart had appeared in High Sierra uh, in 1941 as a gangster, typically, but it was a starring role, and he got some attention for that. And when it came time to make The Maltese Falcon, John Huston, who directed The Maltese Falcon, this was his first movie he directed, and he wrote the screenplay for it, but he had written the screenplay for High Sierra, and he wanted to cast Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon as Private Eye Sam Spade. And George Raft had turned the part down because he didn't want to be in a remake. And today we think of The Maltese Falcon as a classic movie. What most people don't realize is it was a remake. It was based on the book by Dashiell Hammett, who himself was a former detective, so he knew what he was writing about when he created the character of Sam Spade. But the movie had been made twice before. It had been made in 1931. It had been made in 1936 as a vehicle for Betty Davis. She didn't play the private eye, but she plays the female character in the story, and it was titled Satan Met a Lady. And so this, this story had been done twice before. And so George Raft turned the part down. He didn't want anything to do with a remake, and he didn't want to be in a movie with a first-time director, which is what John Huston was. And the irony of that is John Huston became one of our great directors. And this movie established Humphrey Bogart's persona as that sort of cynical guy, but who still has a moral code. And he plays it so effectively as Sam Spade. And, of course, he would play a version of that later in Casablanca when we think of Rick. And Maltese Falcon is the one who really the movie that made Humphrey Bogart what we think of as Humphrey Bogart. And it is just a terrific private eye mystery. And uh, Mary Astor, who's one of the great leading ladies of the 1930s, plays uh, the the femme fatale in the movie. And it marks the screen debut of Sidney Greenstreet, who is this wonderful character actor who was in Casablanca and so many other wonderful movies of the 40s. Well, this was his first film, and uh, he plays with Peter Lorre, who was in a couple of other films. It's got a great supporting cast. So uh, it's also just a very entertaining film, a great mystery, and uh, it's Humphrey Bogart. Now, as if that weren't enough, you keep going. (laughs) Yes, the series is going to continue. Uh, We've announced the films through uh, the end of July, which is the Maltese Falcon, but we plan to run a movie almost every week through September. And uh, I can tell you, though, we haven't announced it yet. Uh, I can give you a little sneak peek and tell you we do plan to show The Sandlot, which is a, a favorite movie of the last 20 years. It's set in the 1960s. It's about friendship and baseball, a group of boys who get together a baseball team to pass the time away in the summer. And The Sandlot is a, is a favorite movie of a lot of folks, particularly those who have fond childhood memories of playing baseball. So another great family movie. Uh, we also plan to show The Princess Bride, which is one of the most quotable comedies ever made. 
one of those movies, and occasionally the classic movies we show were not big hits when they first showed in theaters. Now, the ones we've talked about today mostly were, but The Princess Bride is an example of a movie that most people never saw in a theater because it wasn't that big a movie when it first came out, but it developed this huge fan following in home entertainment. But for anybody who's a true Princess Bride fan, first of all, they love watching it over and over, and many of them may not have seen it in a theater. Well, you'll be able to see it at the, on the big screen at the Kirby in August. And we've got some other some other announcements we'll be making, too. And you were suggesting that this is part of a welcome back to the Kirby, not just with movies. Absolutely. And and the, the movie series sort of kicks us off on June 25th, and we'll be doing that every Friday, as I said. But, of course, the FM Kirby Center is known primarily today for live performances. And it's a marvelous venue to see a live show or concert. And we've been uh, announcing those, our first live event, open to the public, happens on August 9th when we're going to have the Happy Together Tour starring the Turtles. And for anyone who lived through the 1960s, as we did, or is fond of 1960s music, you know that the Turtles had a very big hit with Happy Together. And this is a tour that the Turtles do with other great bands from the 1960s, included will be Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, who of course had the hits with Young Girl and Girl's a Woman Now. Uh, the Vogues, who did You're the One and Five O'Clock World and some other big hits, Earth Angel. Uh, the Classics Four, I remember them, Spooky and Stormy and Traces, Traces of Love, that was Classics Four. And of course, The Association, which had uh, Long Comes Mary and Never My Love. So these are some terrific bands, and they're all, all appearing on the same program. So it's not just one great group from the 60s. It's, you know, five or six of them and all performing their greatest hits. So it's like a greatest hits album with many different artists, but it's all live. And I can tell you, I've seen this show before in a venue down in Philadelphia, and I can't wait to see it again at the Kirby. It's a great time. You'll hear these wonderful music performed live on the Kirby stage. And uh, we've already announced some other live events that are coming up on uh, September 11 is another Doo-Wop's uh, Legends concert, which are always popular. Uh, oh, what a night. And on September 16 is Straight No Chaser, which is an a cappella group. It's very popular and a favorite at the Kirby. This will be the third time that Straight No Chaser is appearing at the Kirby. So those tickets are probably going to go pretty fast. So the Kirby's open for business. We've got some great shows coming, new announcements all the time, the classic movie series starting on June 25. And we just want to get the word out to everybody in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's time to come back to the Kirby. So come back. John Hersker member of the board of the F.M. Kirby Center for the Performing Arts on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre. He is also the artistic director and host of the classic film series at the Kirby. The series will open the Kirby Center following the pandemic lockdown. Welcome back to the Kirby. And as we heard, the opening film will be this Friday. June 25th, and you'll be able to see Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and there'll be two times in the course of that day and every week when there is a movie. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone on Friday, July 25th at 1 in the afternoon and also at 7.30, and then you have a chance to hear this music... Jurassic Park, and that's a film that will show on the 9th, and so it will be throughout the course 
of the summer as the Kirby Center in downtown Wilkes-Barre welcomes back film fans and performance fans post-pandemic. And those shows, those evening shows are at 7.30, so you can see matinees of the films at 1 o'clock and then evening performances at 7.30 at the FM Kirby Center for the Performing Arts on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre. For more information, on the web, kirbycenter.org, kirbycenter.org. Center.